Have you been to Nami? Uh, maybe. That's like the vegan ice cream store that I saw Diana Taurasi at. Oh, no, I've not been there, but I know it because of that story. I mean, if it's good enough for Diana Taurasi, it's good enough for me. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklib. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing a movie swap of some feel-good films. I watched Big Fish for the first time, and Amanda, what did you watch? I watched Big. End of sentence. <laughs> really hard Google one. It, like The SEO on that movie is tough, but we'll get to those first. My friend, how are you doing? What have you been watching? Good. Doing good. I've been going to a lot of weddings, so wedding season is in full effect here. Um, But in the meantime, I have been watching actually quite a lot of movies, which is very exciting. Um, I really only watched like two seasons of television in the whole month of October. I did want to shout one out. So I did watch Only Murders in the Building, which is on Hulu. It's very charming. It's about podcasts. And they're like obsessed with true crime podcasts and then a true crime happens in their building. So they make a podcast trying to solve the murder in their building. And it's very cute. So I liked that one. But I did watch um, a couple of movies recently that I wanted to shout out. So I finally got to see The Favorite. Um, with nice. Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz and the incredible Olivia Coleman movie blew me away. So good. I mean, this is not an original thought, but <laughs> so good. It also inspired one of the best Oscar moments within the last few years. A hundred percent. Olivia Coleman was just completely shocked that she had won despite the performance she had given. Olivia Coleman should win everything she ever wants for the rest of her life. Like she's she's in like all of my favorite stuff. I I love Olivia Coleman. I also watched Pride and Prejudice, the Keira Knightley version. Great. An excellent young Rosamund Pike in that movie as well. Shout out to Mr. Darcy and a very famous hand. Amanda, I also watched that movie for the first time, like, I think within the last month. Yeah. Did what you a like it? fucking banger, dude. Yeah. That movie rips. There's no reason that movie should be that good. And yet, it's That's so good. That's true. That's absolutely true. And then I watched like a very twisted Spanish scary movie that I want. I like kind of told you about. I don't want to give too much away because there's like all these twists, but it's called La Piel de Abito. And it, you can find it on HBO Max, at least um, at the time of the recording. And it features Antonio Banderas. And it is Ooh. just a wild ride. If you watch movies with subtitles, which we at Blind Spotter support, watching foreign films with subtitles as our King Bong Joon-ho would would want us to. It's really, really good if you like kind of scary, twisted movies. I also just want to say we love watching any and all media with subtitles. I'm having a hard time in the theaters. (laughs) It's pretty tough. Yeah. I went to go watch Dune. I rewatched Dune in theaters and I'm like, man, it'd be really tough to hang out with this if I you know, hadn't read the book or didn't know what was going on already. But uh, in terms of what I've been watching, I went to go see High Society in theaters. It's the 65th anniversary of that movie, um, the musical with Grace Kelly, Frank Sinatra, and Bing Crosby, their rendition of the Philadelphia story. One of my favorite movies, a comfort movie. Really fun to watch just old movie stars on the big screen. And you can really tell how much more seeing it on a large screen in a dark room kind of benefits 
any kind of movie. So that was that was a grand old time. I was the youngest person there by a solid 40 years. Shout out to Grace Kelly. Another movie I watched, The Harder They Fall on Netflix. Uh, it ah. came out in early November, if I have that right, or I came out within so, the last yeah. few weeks. Super duper fun movie with Idris Elba, Jonathan Majors, Regina King, Lakeith Stanfield. That movie rips. It's a whole lot of fun. It's just a capital M movie. It's a thrill ride. It's definitely on Um, my list. I need to get to it for sure. It's just a banging good time. Like I don't know how else to describe it. And then the other movie I watched was To Have and To Have Not or To Have and Have Not, uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall's first movie together. I've never seen a Bogart Bacall movie before, but um, it inspired potentially future topics uh, on this show. So just a wide variety of things uh, going on. Uh, but before we get to like the movies we are watching, also I'm doing good. I don't. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm doing I, good. Um, yeah, we're good. Uh, we're alive. You know, we've been traveling a lot. I was on the East Coast, so I haven't been watching a lot of movies. But I was reintroduced to like watching movies on planes, mm-hmm. watching Chaos Walking, which is not a good movie, but I had a good time. I watched Night House on the airplane, oh. like a, a scary movie that came out this year. It was not as good as people were saying it was, but maybe it's better in a theater. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Pig with Nicolas Cage, and that was a good time. So, yeah. uh, are you flying? Uh, are you flying American Airlines these days? No, I'm a Delta guy. Oh, they similar movie uh, library. <laughs> Yeah, Delta's movie library is pretty strong right now. I know I'm flying around too much whenever I'm like, well, there's not that much new stuff on here. <laughs> anyway, good God. Also, Happy New Year, Amanda. Happy New Year! When we're recording this, it's still a month and a half away, but when people are listening to this, we'll be two weeks into 2022. Good Hell God. Yeah. I think around this time, I'll be going to 8123 Fest, which fucking rules for me. Are you a fan of the main? Uh, Yeah. Have you heard of him? Do you want me to tell <laughs> you main, all about him? But I'll spring this question on you. Since, you know, New Year's and people try to do resolutions, we are pro make resolutions if we want to. Don't do them if you don't want to. But in your past, have you had a resolution where you're like, that was a good choice? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely pro resolution. I'm pro like achievable, but inspiring resolutions. Yeah. Where it's like something I've wanted to do, but I just like need to give myself like a little bit of a, a little push to actually yeah. make it happen. My 2020 resolution of watching 20 new movies I had not seen before that I oh. thought were classics is my favorite resolution because it sort of kicked off me just filling my my blind spot here. So that's a really good one. The one in 2021 that I think I'm going to be able to get and uh, may I hope not. Knock on wood, don't jinx myself, but <laughs> to do some sort of um, inversion, whether it's headstand, forearm stand, or head or handstand without using the Ooh. wall as like a support. I'm really close on my forearm stand, and I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks I can get it. So that'll be that'll be a really good one for this year. What is uh, one of your favorite resolutions? Well, first of all, I want to say I believe in you. I'm excited to see you invert. Um, second, <laughs> I am also grateful for that resolution of 20 classic movies in 2020 because i think that's how you met rocky balboa your one true love i love him (laughs) i think my favorite resolution i've potentially ever made and i don't necessarily remember what year it was was inspired by john green author vlogger general good internetsman and liverpool fan fan. (laughs) he decided to have less opinions just be okay. Just just be okay when somebody asks you, what do you think of this? And his answer would be like, I don't know, or I don't have an opinion. 
And it's very freeing as two people who work in the media. That's really nice. Or in content creation or just journalistic or journalistic adjacent. It's nice to not just to let go of having opinions on everything. There's a lot of content out there, guys. That's why we haven't seen a lot of these movies. And so that's been my favorite resolution I've ever made. It's like, okay, to not really have a thought or opinion on everything. There's a lot of stuff to to have an opinion on, so you don't necessarily need an opinion on everything. Send us your uh, New Year's resolutions, whether they be specific or vague. I love hearing. Yeah, them. it's all an endeavor of trying to become an adult and understanding how to grow up in this world, which is kind of what these two movies are about. They are. It's a very very shaky transition, but uh, let's talk about the movies we're swapping. All right, uh, Big and Big Fish, which are two different movies with one different word in between them. Which was uh, not why we paired these movies. No. It just is like a very funny coincidence that they happen to have like a lot in common while also being very different movies. So I thought that was funny. Much more in common than I anticipated. Yeah. I'll tell you why we are swapping them. So beginning of the year, we got a lot going on. You just had the holidays. You had a lot of social interactions, hopefully, if you're into that kind of thing. Your brain leaked out of your ears from Spider-Man, probably, and you know, we're looking into the new year with a little bit of comfort, a little bit of happiness, some joy, some some movies that make us smile. So we chose two comfort films. I chose Big Fish, um, the Tim Burton film. This is, for those listening closely, two Tim Burton movies in a row. <laughs> back to back Burton. Back to back Burton on Blind Spotters. Hell yeah, brother. That's a lot of bees. And then uh, Zach chose Big, the Penny Marshall film starring Tom Hanks. One of the few Tom Hanks movies I hadn't seen yet. So I was very ecstatic to take it off of my list and to finally see it. Yeah, just a heartwarming pair. And the thing is with feel good movies, you might shed a tear or two. But it'll be like one of those times you shed a tear and then kind of chuckle at yourself like, oh, look at me feeling my emotions, which again, here at Blind Spotters, all about feeling all the emotions. We love emotions here. It was uh, just a really nice time. Like you alluded to, we've been pretty busy this last few weeks or since the last time I recorded or whatever. So it's kind of nice to just sit down and watch a pair of nice movies. Yeah. Something charming. Love adventures. Love New York City. Yeah. Love Tom Hanks in New York City. <laughs> love Ewan yeah. McGregor smiling. I love uh, Ewan McGregor's um, accent. That's great. Love Billy Crudup. Always plays a guy who's like a little too much of a douchebag to be a good guy, but is definitely still kind of a good guy. I love a moppy-headed brunette. If you're a moppy-headed brunette who would like to hang out with me, follow us on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> make it your make it your New Year's resolution to DM Amanda. Um, yes. So I think we have can leave it there and we can flip this coin. Uh, why don't you call it? Uh, I'm going to call heads. Heads. I feel like you're on a roll. You get to choose. Yes. I want to choose Big Fish because I just finished watching it. So it's fresh in my mind. All right, Zach. Let us hear a rundown. This is a, this is a plot movie. There's a lot going on in here, which another uh, theme of the podcast. Um, so tell me what happened in Tim Burton's Big Fish. So Big Fish, directed by Tim Burton, written by John August, based on a novel of the same name by Daniel Wallace. Uh, the movie opens with a man recalling a story of using a wedding ring as bait to capture a gigantic fish. 
Fast forward, and that man is Edward Bloom, played by Albert Finney as an old man and Ewan McGregor as a young man. And Albert Finney's Edward Bloom is telling the story again at a wedding reception for his son, Will Bloom, who is played by Billy Crudup. This story kind of upsets Will because he tells it all the time. He's heard it a million times and he thinks that Edward is kind of stealing the spotlight. And so they have it out and Will tells him that he thinks Edward is pretty much a fake and they stop talking to one another. Three years later, Edward has cancer, and so Will and his pregnant wife, Josephine, played by Marianne Cotillard, head back to Alabama to spend time with him. From there, we start to hear more about Edward's past through his gigantic stories growing up from a small town in Alabama. This is basically where we meet Ewan McGregor's version of Edward, and these stories include an old witch who shows a person their death in her glass eye, an encounter with a giant named Carl, etc. It's all very wild stories. Eventually, Edward finds Carl the Giant some work at Callaway Circus, and Edward there finds the woman he knows he will marry, Sandra Templeton, played by Jessica Lange and Allison Lohman as the elder and younger versions, respectively. Edward loses track of Sandra, though, doesn't even learn her name, and to get her back, he works for free at the circus because the ringleader guy says he knows her. Years later, after helping the boss on a night where the boss becomes a werewolf, he finally relents her name to him and then edward kind of goes finds her professes his love in a beautiful scene with lots of daffodils and they get married essentially um he goes off to war and is presumed dead but then he comes back we'll get to all this but for brevity's sake uh will is determined to learn more about his father and so as we learn more about edward's past his health in the present starts to deteriorate will is determined to learn more about his father and meets jenny a woman from one of his stories in a town called specter and she tells will a lot about how his father helped rebuild their town and remain faithful to his wife and kind of helps will come to terms with all of that edward though then has a stroke and is in pretty bad shape and when will goes to see him he asks will to tell him the story of his last day and they kind of reconcile from there. will kind of creates a story that his dad would make of his last day on earth at edward's funeral will sees the less exaggerated versions of all these people from all his dad's stories and years later will is now telling edward's stories to his own son kind of keeping him immortal that was a rough plot summary with lots of skipped moments but how did i do (laughs) i mean it is it's such a dense movie um with like no thorough plot it's it's a lot of flashbacks so it, it is hard to um kind of tell in a linear way so i thought you did a good job you got you got all the key points in there yeah it's like kind of if i was trying to tell the story of princess bride while like also telling the story of what was going on with the kid in the bed and his <laughs> yeah, grandpa basically. Um, <laughs> but anyway uh why did you pick this movie for me so we did um edward scissorhands last and to me like Edward Scissorhands, Big Fish, and then, you know, it's still on the list, but um, Beetlejuice, I think, are, like, Mm -hmm. the three movies that, like, perfectly capture Tim Burton, and this is sort of the, like, the in-between of, you know, it's not a a grim sort of, it doesn't have that, like, grim appeal to it, the way, like, a lot of it, like, a gothic sort of vibe, the way a lot of his movies do, but it Mm -hmm. is, like, extremely visually pleasing, and it is, at the end of the day, just like a fantastical story full of stories. 
And like that is what Tim Burton tells is just like these ultimate fantasies. And um, it's it's a modern fairy tale, really. It's also mm-hmm. one of my favorite scripts. There's so many one-liners. And I was amazed as I was like making dinner while I was watching or doing something, like how many lines I knew still, just like as it would come <laughs> up. And I'm like, oh, I didn't realize I knew that many words to this movie. But it's also my favorite love story. I am not one for a big cheesy romantic movie generally because I find them to be very predictable. But this is like my favorite love story. Like I cry and grin every single time. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But I mean... To me, like the the line that um, he says, he says, they say when you meet the love of your life, time stops. And that's true. Like it just like I, that's what I want love to feel like so badly. Mm-hmm. And and like the daffodil scene, I think, is like the most romantic scene ever. And if you've ever followed me on Twitter, I think I tweet about it all the time. Um, <laughs> and it's so good. And like the laundry scene when he returns from war, like I cry every single time. Um, and at the very end where she gets into the bathtub with him, um, as he's dying and, and Will finally understands that like his parents love story was, was real. Um, is just so beautiful to me. It's so good. When did you first watch this movie? I was a kid. Like I, I watched this movie really young. Um, my mom really likes this movie as well. It's a movie we like together. And so definitely like made a lasting impact on me. It's very possible this was my first Tim Burton movie and I just didn't know. Mm. I watched this movie definitely as a as like a kid with my mom and then have rewatched it many times since then. I love that. Well, again, if anybody is a mop-headed boy, um daffodils who wants to buy me a field of flowers from five states, I'm around. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that wraps it up there. I don't know how much more we have to talk about this movie. Yeah, movie all right. Uh, moving on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, so big. Uh, <laughs> all right. So what did you like about the movie? What were some of your first impressions? First impression is Ewan McGregor. I know. What a man. What a charmer. Him saying, Sandra Templeton, I love you and I will marry you. It's so good. So beautiful. I love it. But we're going to get to him more because I've been thinking about him a lot. I mean, I guess always, but you know, uh, we'll, we'll get to him more. I do want to say, watching this after last month's episode of watching Edward Scissorhands, it is a different kind of Burton, although you can kind of tell the two are related, obviously, for the fantastical reasons you mentioned. But researching it, it was crazy to find out that this was originally a Steven Spielberg project. That's another um, thing these movies have in common. Big yeah, it was also a Steven Spielberg movie originally. Spielberg was a busy guy uh, back in the day. Phoenix like 20 years ago. Shout out Is to he really? Spielberg, yes. Yeah, it all comes back to Phoenix. <laughs> uh, so he had originally cast Jack Nicholson in the movie, which would have been interesting. Spielberg dropped out so he could do Catch Me If You Can, which I think we all won because of that. This movie kind of has like forest gumpy vibes to it again i don't know if that's because i also watched a tom hanks movie uh no that's like next good to this point. but it's just a lot of you know this dude from alabama who has like an outsized impact from his small town and he's a lot more edward bloom is a lot more he has his own agency i guess in his life mm-hmm. than forrest gump who just happens to be in all these politically charged and famous moments i thought the movie was almost metatextual to tim burton in the style of it and the fact that the central conflict was between Edward and Will 
and Will wanting Edward just to tell the story. And Edward, I think, literally says, but it's not as good of a story if I tell it that way, you know, and how much of it is true versus how much of it is just entertaining and captivating and likable and what you want it to be. And isn't that what movies are sometimes? What we want it to be is that kind of version of escapism. So I don't know how much Burton was purposefully commenting on his own style at that point, but I did think that was kind of a fun thing going on with the movie because it was an interesting point of his career. He was fresh off of Planet of the Apes and he wanted to get back to kind of original stories. I think he said it kind of reminded him of Beetlejuice where it was, you know, not IP. It wasn't, you know, Batman or or Planet of the Apes, like we just said, or Sleepy Hollow. It kind of brought him back down and it felt like he could kind of put his feet back on the ground a little bit with this movie. The movie is definitely, it's a weird movie full of vignettes of like weird people and weird scenarios. Like there's definitely Tim Burton weirdness about it, 100%. (laughs) But like if someone, you know, isn't into the Tim Burton aesthetic, I feel like they could still really appreciate this movie. And that is like one of the reasons why I wanted to Uh, show it to you because I know that you do appreciate all sorts of films and I think that it really did just show that like you know even if you get him outside of like claymation he can still make like a really good movie yeah I always think of different movies where it's a director with a distinct style or vibe to them and there's always depending on how many movies they make one or a few movies where their touches are there, but they're not as apparent. So the main example I'm thinking of is Inside Man and Spike Lee directing that movie. Like, yes, you can tell it's directed by Spike, but there's not the usual Spike Lee-ness to Inside Man, which is a great movie, but it's not the most Spike Lee movie. So I, I felt like that was kind of this for Tim Burton, where you can tell it's directed by Tim Burton, but it's muted almost. It, it's It's pared down. This seemed like a good blend of like, the heart and head of Tim Burton. Yeah. I also, um, on this rewatch, really noted the Danny Elfman score. So Danny Elfman and Tim Burton, you know, they work together on almost all of Tim Burton's projects. Um, quite famously, they're a really known duo. But I thought that the score in this one just has a sort of, like, I, I feel like a lot of the other scores are very, like, whimsical and almost like cartoony. And I think this mm. one is a little, you know, similar to the movie, is a little bit more grounded in reality. And um, there's definitely some some things that have not aged super well. And I definitely stood out in this rewatch as well. I think you noted here um, the Korean War scene is, I don't think, something that anyone would make today. It's actively bad. Like, yeah. I actually had to pause the movie for a moment. For many reasons, it's just stereotypical and bad and just lazy. But it's yeah. a terrible part of the movie. It is a really, it really terrible th- part of the It movie. really threw me out watching it, which is a bummer because it also it flips really quick to that being like a really heartfelt moment when he returns and Sandra thought he was dead. That one didn't land for me because I was still kind of stewing on that sequence, which is unfortunate. It, it is like a, <laughs> it's just bad. It is an objectively um, not good scene. Um, and there's, I'm sure, a thousand ways that they would do it differently if they made it today. But, you know, it was it's not that old of a movie. It's from 2003. Um, there's not a lot of good excuses um for that scene it's just bad like we can just leave it at that it's a bad sequence don't have your asian characters just being kung fu guys literally siamese twins named ping and jing yeah no Um, bad (laughs) all bad let's just 
we're moving we, on. We say that is bad. That is objectively bad. And we have a lot of other parts of this movie that we want to talk about that we enjoy. But something that is terrifying is the town of Spectre. That's something that I also stood out, especially after watching Get Out a couple of episodes ago. Have you seen um, the Nicole Kidman version of Stepford Wives? No, I've seen neither version of those. Okay, so it does give me Stepford Wives vibes, um, but it's also like so beautiful that I would like love to live in a town where like the grass is so soft that you don't ever wear your shoes. Like that sounds perfect to me. Um, but I noticed that you had written that it was uh, terrifying to you before I rewatched it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess this is really unsettling. <laughs> it is instantly terrifying. Like... <laughs> It's just an all-white town in the middle of the woods behind some spider webs. They have grass in the streets. I don't know. I'm from the desert. I don't see a lot of grass on the streets often. These people are just out there with their toes out, you know? <laughs> and all they can write about shoes. is like how much they like the town. That's like, the other part that's terrifying. It just gives a, a poet laureate writer's block. Poor Steve Buscemi becomes a, a bank robber because of this town. So oh, God. Spectre is terrifying. Yes, it looks beautiful, but... And the pie, I'm sure, is great. Love a pie. Love a pie. But I'm glad you and McGregor got out of there uh, quickly. You can visit it, though. It was filmed on like a private island in Alabama. Is it still set up? It's like deserted, but they kind of touched it up because they knew people want to visit it or whatever. But oh, it's probably way it's, scarier now that it's deserted. There's some YouTube videos of people visiting it. It's just like a random island that you can go to. Oh, so I'll do it on do my my Tim Burton tour where I see that and then the the town in Edward Scissorhands that you also told me is real. <laughs> yes, you'll see a deserted island in a Florida suburb. Just bangers of sightseeing. Can't wait. <laughs> Granted, this is coming from the guy who le- definitely walked 30 minutes out of the way to go see the church in Lady Bird when well, he was in I New York. That's, that, that's like normal. I did the same thing for a My Chemical Romance music video when I was in LA. And then I dro- I also drove 35 minutes outside of where I was in Massachusetts to go see the hill from Greta Gerwig's Little Women. That's a bit much. Both things were beautiful. I was by myself, just chilling on like a Tuesday afternoon. You got to do what makes anyway. you happy though. So I support it. All right. So what? Back to this movie. What, back to the movie we're talking about. What have you thought about most since watching it? Let's get into Ewan McGregor. Let's do it. That man, first of all, works a lot. If you ever look at his filmography, he's putting up numbers. And coming into this movie, he was fresh off of Moulin Rouge, which is a musical, famously. (laughs) It is a musical, famously. He had just come off Star Wars Episode Two and Black Hawk Down. Just these massive movies. He's, He's a charmer. He's a Scottish man pulling off a Southern accent. He said it's easier for him to do the Southern American accent than just a neutral American accent because, quote, you can really sink your teeth into it. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, and they were filming in Alabama, so he said just the immersion of it all kind of helps him. He has to play a lot of parts. He has to always play the most popular guy and the most charming guy, and it's it just comes so naturally to him because he really is that. Loved him in this movie. What a guy. He's probably a, a heartthrob for young Amanda. Um, probably, but like, didn't know it. Like, uh, back to the moppy headed brunettes was definitely more my type. Oh, but, that's fair. But also, like, when I think of like romance in movies, I think of all like all the scenes that he's in in this movie. So, definitely set a bar for me as a young 
young child. Um, but I love Ewan McGregor. Um, I also really like the movie Train Spotting. He's excellent in that. Very, mm. very Scottish. And it's a it's a good one. He's definitely an actor. I think when like a movie really works, but I'm not super satisfied with the actor in it. I always want to put you and McGregor in instead. Um, <laughs> I uh, shout out to our our good friend Maya. Her and I talk about this a lot that you and McGregor should just like replace a lot of actors in a lot of movies. Sometimes I am so grateful that he is the one who ended up becoming an young Edward Bloom because he really is just like so charming but his eyes are so shiny that like as he goes through this like fantastical world and he just looks at everything with wonder it like is so reflective in his eyes and it's an incredible part of the film and I just don't think that I would get that impression from Jack Nicholson or a lot of other actors, <laughs> to be completely honest. Like, he he does look like everything is sort of happening to him and he's reacting uh, in in real time. And it's just, it's so good. Yeah, because the character has to be capable enough to make his way through all of this. Like, it seems like oftentimes Edward Bloom is just banking on his own charm and confidence and uh, understanding of what his own death will look like is a... Uh, theme that he goes back to a lot he's like oh this isn't how i'm gonna die so i can just kind of i'm playing with house money here Mm -hmm. and that's a hard thing to convey that without being looking like a kind of an asshole or smarmy or i don't know that that performance goes wrong in a lot of ways like i can think of a lot of actors around the same age as you mcgregor is right here that wouldn't pull this off as well and and maybe it's because even mcgregor has that really half his face kind of smile and like you said, the shiny eyes, but he really just matches perfectly with the aesthetic of this movie. It's almost like it's really hard to picture another person in that spot because the light won't reflect off their hair in the same way, or he won't have as big of like a squint in his eye when he smiles while he professes his love to Sandra. Like it's a very specific performance to Ian McGregor, even though he's not the first person I think of when I think of distinct performers. He, but there's also like an, like a, innocence and like purity yeah 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 that uh comes with him playing this character it would have been really easy for tim burton to put johnny depp in this movie and johnny depp was like a 90s early 2000s heartthrob like he Mm -hmm. you know they had a working relationship like it definitely could have been um it wouldn't have been the first time that uh he would have been in a more serious role um and it would have been really easy but i just don't think i would have believed it as much mm-hmm. and i mean i'll never know because i'll that movie didn't get made but i do like that there is sort of like a um the guy you want to take home to your mom-ness about ewan mcgregor naturally that makes him really good in this film young albert finney low-key does kind of look like ewan mcgregor like they're both british oh you're right i'm looking at a photo of him right now that's really yeah. crazy and it's kind of hilarious again that they're both not from Alabama, which is fine because they both pull it off well. Albert Finney is just a titan in this movie. He looks exactly like a man who's always been the guy who walks in the room and everybody's like, oh, Edward, Edward's here. Tell us a story, Edward. And like he commands the room. He spent a lot of time commanding rooms. A classic extrovert. Classic. And he's probably a Leo, you know? <laughs> I can find out. It's one of those things that are like, 
when I think of Albert Finney, I have a really hard time removing him from this role because I I just know it so well. It's the uh, Cleese Starling effect, um, as mm. I will refer to it as <laughs> this podcast um, in reference to our first episode. But um, that is like who he is to me. Between him, Ewan McGregor, and Billy Crudup, it's it, it's a three-hander, but honestly, it's a Ewan McGregor movie, which is the point. It's about him. It's about that time in his life. You know, He can pull off the clean-cut look and also the sweet chops driving in his Dodge Charger. And like you said, he can look at all these things with this like childlike wonder, which is another thing I thought about a lot, where it's the relationship of rejecting and reaccepting the childlike wonder of growing up and looking back on your own past in the most positive light possible. Um, and this kind of ties into the other point of like the whole fathers and sons of it all, because Billy Crudup is playing, he's grown up as a cynic, basically. He has become cynical to his father's stories because who among us hasn't heard our parents tell the same stories over and over and over and over again. And then you have, you know, Will Bloom who becomes a reporter. And one of the things you get taught as a reporter is like, if your mom tells you that she loves you, go check it out. Like you just, you start, you wanted to ask all the questions of what actually happened because journalistically you think that's the most interesting thing. And this kind of pulls the spectrum back to be like, yeah, that's cool. But also sometimes stories are just great. Like the truth ultimately doesn't matter as much as capturing the essence of who Edward Bloom is whenever Will Bloom talks to his own son. Yeah. And like there's a there's a moment where they first reunite um, when Albert Finney is sick where he says, you know, everything's about to change you're about to have your own son. I mean, the death of his father and like the birth of his son is is ultimately that that change for him where he's like, oh, I, I understand why we want the fantastical, why we want to dream big, why you want to tell big stories and maybe not the, the true story, but the big story. And, and watching him pass that on after being a cynic and sort of reconnecting with his father um, is like one of the most beautiful parts of the movie. And I imagine when I have my own child, it will feel very similar of like, you know, you'll you'll tell maybe the version of the story your dad told the 20th time where the details are a little different than the first time he told the story. But now it has become the story um, because right. I've heard it so many times and, and things like that. So I have a great relationship with my dad. Um, love him. He loves telling a story. I've heard his stories so many times. I know the beats of all his stories. Even if I've never heard the story, I know the beats that's going to come. And it's really hard to not do what Will Bloom does and just roll your eyes and leave the room or stop listening. And, you know, because the thing is, a good story told well, oftentimes can we all we all crave it, whether it's because we want to feel like a kid again, or we want to live through that story. It's all, again, part of this escapism. And all the exchanges between Billy Crudup and Albert Finney are so spot on. Like Billy Crudup doesn't get a lot to do in this movie. He basically just has to be a pessimistic kind of brat. Yeah. Because everybody else around him enjoys Edward Bloom's Bloomness, I guess. But Will Bloom feels like he uses the stories as like a arm's distance protection or like a, like a, a mm -hmm. way to keep Will away from him. But throughout the movie, it's kind of Will understanding that is how he is teaching his son about who he is. Like, this is the only way he knows how is to tell these stories. And yeah, they're entertaining, but also like, yeah, the twins aren't conjoined at the hip, but they did exist. Or this giant wasn't 12 feet tall, but he seven foot five, you know, in those last 20 minutes when when Billy Crudup has to tell the story to his father and he's like, he doesn't want to and almost feels like he can't live up to it. But then 
clumsily kind of in his own way, he starts to learn how to tell stories like his father and learn how to do that myth making that he's later going to tell his son. And in a way, Edward Bloom is crafting still his own story for his grandson because he knows he's not going to get to meet him, which is terrible and heartbreaking. And that's like the moment, obviously, where it clicks for Will Bloom. And he's like, okay, cool. Like, I get this. It's like in the movie Coco, when people stop talking about you, that's when you really die. And so this is a way to keep those stories because who wants to tell the story like, oh, yeah, he played football in Alabama and he was great. Then he left town and started working in a circus like it's just more fun this way. I think you really hit on a good point where Will sees the stories and the storytelling and never getting to like the real truth of it as a way to like keep his son at an arm's length that he feels his father did this to him. But he realizes later that he shares these stories and he wants to tell the stories over and over again because that's how he shares his love. And I think at the end where Will has to tell the story back to his father, he realizes that storytelling is about love. And then when he passes it on to his kid, like he's he's telling his son these stories because he loves him. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, not because of that I don't want you to know the real me. It's that I want you to know the best version, even if mm-hmm. it's not, you know, I don't want you to be disappointed. I want you to like know the the life I thought I led. And it, it is about a way to share love. Both of them and their feelings and thoughts are valid. Like, I don't know about you, but anytime I see any of my aunts and uncles or people from my parents past, I'm like, how are they really? Oh, I was just at a wedding this past weekend which was essentially like a gross point reunion because both my cousin and her new husband are from the same spot in Michigan. But it was like all of my dad and and my uncle's friends, a lot of them were there. And it was like one of my dad's like childhood friends and her husband were there and like instantly knew who I was and like all this stuff. And they were all sharing stories and it, they tell tales of you know, what they were like growing up. And, you know, every time you hear them, you, you learn something new. But what were some of the things you looked up um, as soon as you finished watching? So based on our conversation of Edward Scissorhands being very personal for Tim Burton, I wanted to know how personal was this for Tim Burton? And essentially it wasn't, but also it was like, this isn't based on his life or anything like that. It's based on a novel. It was unfinished at the time when I think he joined the project, but during felt like he had just lost his parents when they were started filming uh he he lost his parents within the span of two years so it kind of became personal for him and um i was watching an interview with him and ewan mcgregor and billy crudup and i can't remember exactly who was doing the interviewing or what the question was but basically he was asking tim burton like how personal is this for you and he's like well i'm gonna say not at all but like the answers there in the movie. It was kind of inescapable to put those emotions into the movie in some capacity. So I thought that was pretty interesting because, you know, obviously that's that's very heavy. I also wanted to know, is this when Tim Burton met Helena Bottom Carter? No, it was during Planet of the Apes. And during this movie, she was pregnant during the filming. Um, she said that the makeup to become the old witch took like five hours and lots of fumes. And it was just very terrible. So shout out to her for doing the most as always. Were they already dating? Was it his kid? I don't know if it was his kid, but they were dating. Yeah, I guess we. It's not for us to know. <laughs> it's a weird thing, but <laughs> no, no, uh, yeah. this is this is part of it all, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have never thought that question before. <laughs> 
but now I now I'm very curious. So according to Wikipedia, uh, his son was born in 2003, which was after they were filming this movie. So I assume so. Tim Burton, if you want to clarify that for us, um, Tim, come on the pod. (laughs) Another thing I looked up was the Oscars. And like you had previously mentioned, Danny Elfman was nominated for best score at the 2004 Oscars and lost to Lord of the Rings Return of the King, like many movies did that year. Another thing I looked up was which sorority was Sandra Templeton in? Oh, that's smart. So I wrote down the little symbols on her sorority house, and she was part of Sigma Omega Delta, which is a fictional sorority. I wonder if like you have to get the rights to things if you use a real sorority or They have to. I assume so. As two people who also were not in Greek life and extremely weren't in Greek life, who the hell knows? I do know, though, that they shot at Huntington College, which is not Auburn because Auburn wanted to give script approval and they were taking too long. So they were just like, we're going to go somewhere else. A real L for Auburn there, not getting the film shot there. And if anybody knows anything about Auburn football in the early 2000s, that's not the only L they took. (laughs) I'll take your word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any questions for me about the movie? I know there's kind of a a ton going on. So there is a lot going on, but I think I, you know, it was pretty straightforward. It it, it wasn't a difficult movie to follow Um, and not in a bad way. It was just easy to watch and easy to comprehend, which I appreciate. Um, Do you have any questions or comments that you would like to ask or make? Yes. Um, Did you have a vignette that you liked the most? Easy answer, but probably the one where he works at the circus and then goes and gets Sandra and poor Roy from the office kind of takes another L. Um, gets another woman stolen from him. I like some of the traveling salesman stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when he's rebuilding Spectre, I actually appreciated that one a bit. I mean, it's it's the moment where he says, I love you and I will marry you with the daffodils. Like that's the scene that you probably should think of in this movie. It's the iconic moment. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be the favorite. I do think that the uh, traveling salesman bits get a little overshadowed when people talk about this movie. It is a very fun part of the film. But another thing I wanted to ask is, did you catch baby Miley Cyrus in the film? I did not catch one Destiny Hope Cyrus in this movie. Yes. So in the very beginning where they see the, where they go to meet the witch to look in the eye for the first time, she's the little girl. Oh, no way. Later on where Edward is like, his body is growing really quickly. She's in the church. Um so a little baby I, Miley Cyrus. And now that I you just, know, when you go and see it, you're like, oh, yeah, it's the same face. Like, totally. And I think that, you know, we talked about that this is definitely an Albert Finney, Billy Crudup, and Ewan McGregor movie. But every time I rewatch it, I am blown away by how good Jessica Lange is. There's such like a lightness in this movie for her. And especially now that she is like sort of typecast into the... Uh, american horror story world that Mm -hmm. to see her play sort of this this light and romantic and she never doubts any of his stories and always knows that you know she believes in the whole fantasy of the man that she married and and who knows if it's real or not and she it doesn't matter and she's just so in love and it's so pretty there is uh such like a, a warmth about her that I love every time. And I mentioned it earlier, but the scene where the two of them get into the bathtub Mm -hmm. um, at the very end is when she knows that it's, it's the end. It's really heartbreaking because she's losing, 
you know, the deep love of her life, the the one true fantasy romance we have all been sold uh, actually happens to her. And she knows that it's the end because Edward knows how he dies. And Mm -hmm. it's she plays it really beautifully. I think that's the most romantic part of the movie is that scene. I fucking ball every single time. It's so good. Um, a scene I think about a lot is that like, if I could have a perfect funeral, it would be all of the most important players and all of my stories throughout life would be there <laughs> to like to see me off. I'd also like to be put into a body of water when I die. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. Yeah. When my grandfather passed away a couple of years ago, my dad made a comment that he was really amazed how many people came to his service. Mm-hmm. And it was like not only all of my grandfather's friends, but it was like all of my dad and his brother's lifelong friends mm-hmm. came not only to support, but also because like they grew up with my grandpa also. And like mm-hmm. he had just made a comment. He's like, everyone I knew as a child was there. Like everyone was there. And I think wow. a lot about that scene in the very end where it's like, I want my kid to see at my funeral just every person they've ever heard a story told about has come to like say say their farewells and mm-hmm. i think that we should all be so lucky if we if we end up going out that way that's very beautiful i love that i love this movie <laughs> it's so good so i'm glad you've now seen it as well all right so the big question would you watch the movie again did you enjoy it those might be two different questions but I enjoyed it. I'll watch it. Like if it was on TV and I flip it on, and if it was the part with the Korean War, I'll turn it off. It, it's pretty like red light, green light for me on that. If for some reason I'm watching that and like I'm in a group of people, I'll like get up and like go to the bathroom during that part or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the great parts of this movie are incredibly thoughtful and heartwarming and feel good, which was the theme of this episode. So I'm glad I watched it. I did enjoy it. Ewan McGregor, what a man. What a guy. All right, are we ready to drop the fish and just be big? <laughs> From death to growing up, <laughs> being I, a 13 year old adult. <laughs> I need a break. Okay, let's take a break. This episode of the Blind Spotters podcast is not at all sponsored by Songbird Coffee in downtown Phoenix. Not a sponsor, but a strong recommendation. Go over, get a cold brew growler. You can get 32 ounces of refillable cold brew. Get an ice dirty chai. Do the sweet and spicy combo. That is my favorite. Say hi from Zach and Amanda. We don't have a discount code for you, but they will know who sent you. Support Songbird and support your local businesses. Amanda, it's time to put the quarter in the machine, make a wish. It's time to talk about Big. My wish is to talk about Tom Hanks every day for the rest of my life. Well, he gave you a lot of content to do it, so let's get going. (laughs) All right, so this movie... I love an 80s movie because it's just a real direct plot. <laughs> it's yeah, a nice it's TV the, to see. This is to Big Fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is like the thing they have least in common. <laughs> like, I didn't even bring up the freaking handomatic really in when we talked about Big Fish. So yeah. 
I'm happy that I gave you an easy plot summary to write. <laughs> All right. So Tom Hanks plays Josh Baskins, a 13-year-old in New Jersey, who makes a wish on a Zoltar fortune-telling machine to be big after not being tall enough to ride a roller coaster to impress his crush, who is now dating a guy big enough to drive a car. It's a very classic scenario. The next day, he wakes up as a full adult as Tom Hanks and calls on his best friend to try to help him. He convinces that he is him by saying a little jingle that they have together, which is a very sweet moment. Uh, they venture into New York City to try to find the Zoltar machine to reverse it. With no luck, they put in a form that, in order to find it that will take about six weeks, so Josh finds a job. He works um, computers as a toy company since he likes playing computer games. He figured he could figure it out um, until he runs into the company's owner at FAO Schwartz, the famous toy store in New York, and he's caught playing with the toys. They do a very famous dance on a uh, giant piano on the floor. I don't know how to describe it. That's a real thing also at FAO Schwartz. Um, He gets invited to a pitch meeting because of this, where he shoots down the pitch lead, Paul, and his idea for not being fun enough, and Josh gets a promotion to test out toys for a living, uh, which is a pretty sweet dream. Um, With his new salary, he buys an apartment and fills it with things any 13-year-old boy would like, pinball machines, soda machines, trampolines, bunk beds, kind of anything you could ever want. Uh, mm-hmm. During this time, he is settling into his adult life and starts a love affair with his coworker Susan, played by Elizabeth Perkins, who is enamored by his refreshing take on life, his childlike nature, as he is a child. Uh, eventually, Josh's best friend, Billy, gets the forms back to find the Zoltar machine. But at this point, Josh is really in love with Susan and is kind of enjoying being an adult, so he's unsure if he would want to return to child life. He decides he misses his family and warns Susan that he is actually a child and leaves to find the Zoltar machine. Despite not believing him at first, she finds him on the pier just after he has made his wish to become a kid again. Susan drives him to his parents' house and watches Josh become a 13-year-old once more. You nailed it. I gotta say, one thing that I just realized in this very moment is I was just at the FAO Schwarz store. Hmm. Like on accident though. It was a miserable experience. I was very hungover looking for food and coffee. And I think there there was a blue bottle in the Rockefeller Plaza. And so I was trying to find it. And so I just went inside the first door I saw and it was immediately the toy store. And let me tell you, when you're hungover and sweaty and tired, the last thing you want is to be dodging kids playing with toys. That's like a circle of hell. Is that you have you're like hungover searching for coffee, but you end up at a gigantic toy store in New York City. I literally walked in and said, oh, no. (laughs) Anyway. It's the only appropriate response. Anyway, uh, you did a great job with that plot summary. Good job by you. (laughs) Thank you. Why did you pick this movie? Just a really important movie and one of the most iconic movie actors of the last 50 years career, Tom Hanks. Yeah. Ever heard of him? Uh, It's his uh, movie with Penny Marshall. Ever, Ever heard of her? But this was a movie that really... I don't know, shot Tom Hanks into Hollywood stardom. It doesn't go incredibly well for him right away, but this is the one that puts, quote unquote, Tom Hanks on the map. He had been a comedic actor. He had been around. He had done some things, but this was the one where it's like, oh, Tom Hanks is not only a comedian or a, or a comedy movie star. He is a capital M movie star. He is a boatload of charm. He is a leading man. He can be both a kid and an adult in a movie at the same time. He does it all in this movie. And I think 
as people who grow up loving movies, which means you grow up loving Tom Hanks in some capacity, uh, it's cool to see his first, like, it's like in sports stuff, like this was his first all-star season. Um, that's what big is for Tom Hanks. And essentially that's the reason to watch this movie. It's almost like the Tom Hanks origin story in mm-hmm. a way. So, you know, now that you've watched it, now that you have that notch in your belt, uh, what were your first impressions? What stood out to you? Tom Hanks. Yeah. So charming. That's it. We're done. Bye, guys. Wrap it up. It's so good. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's not interesting to say that he's probably my favorite actor, but he really is. Like he's. Just, I mean, he's on the Mount Rushmore of leading men. I think in like all of cinema history, like he will definitely be be up there. Yeah, he's on like the greatest 25 of all time or something like that. Like, yeah, he's the greatest of his generation. It's him versus Denzel pretty much as far as 90s guys and the amount that they've done. They're still doing movies. Your mileage may vary on Finch, but (laughs) (laughs) it was nice to see him uh, in sort of his first role. So young, um, Mm -hmm. which was really fun. But another thing that stood out after having recently watched A League of Their Own for the first time. Um, mm. I think earlier this year, if not late last year, Penny Marshall just really knows what she's up to. Like yeah. the late great fucking Penny Marshall is the score and the music is so her. This first sort of scene between Josh and Billy when they're kids and they're hitting baseballs and they're riding their bikes and stuff like the score that plays underneath it just fills you with that like instant nostalgic warmth that that you get out of her movies. And I thought that the two of them working together like is is a perfect combination. Obviously, Tom Hanks is also in a league of their own and gets to to do a lot of physical comedy in that movie as well. Fun part of the the two times they've worked together is that it's like been big moments in Tom Hanks' career because this one was really a big breakout for him. And then when they worked together again in a league of their own, it was a real like, oh, Tom Hanks can also not only do comedy, but dramatic roles and like lead a movie in that kind of way. Sorry, but back to what you're saying. <laughs> no, but that actually like leads me really nicely into one of my first impressions is that we've experienced in real time sort of the second or third section of Tom Hanks's career where he's strictly doing dramatic roles mm-hmm. and going being able to go back and see a lot of this comedy that he can do. He's so expressive and he's so reactive and you know, there is quite a lot of bodily comedy to it as well. And Mm -hmm. that's just like not a Hanks we see anymore. Obviously he is much older. Maybe it's not a thing we want to see from a man that (laughs) age would be a little concerning or weird possibly, but it is like really nice to see that sort of like uh, that charm and that uh, go with the flow that he does get to do. I do think of um, some of his romantic comedies. He gets to kind of bring that out as well. Those characters have a lot to it, or I know this is obviously animated, but like in Toy Story, like he gets to do a, a lot of the funny lines you can feel his like body moving around when he's reciting those lines. Yeah, it's a lot of great physical comedy. He's such a great physical comedian. It's funny that you think of Toy Story because at first you think, oh, Woody moves around so funny, but it really is just a capturing of Tom Hanks's stringy, <laughs> swoodily movements. And it's so good. He's so electric. He's so magnetic in the way he does it. Like you believe that he is a 13-year-old boy with a 30-year-old man's body moving around and not understanding how much space he's taking up yeah 
and and that the the childlike aspects of him feel very natural and not like mm-hmm. an adult man playing a child. He feels almost like a child playing an adult man, which is like what we're supposed to believe. That's hard to do. Also, shout out uh, Jennifer Gardner, who does it in 13 going on 30. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun. And it is nice to see Tom Hanks in like a fun movie um, because we've seen him do so much serious stuff. And and even even his fun stuff is like, you know, they are the romantic comedies. And I, I think of his character in You've Got Mail, like has a lot of like really funny lines and is like, kind of ridiculous but it ultimately he's like sort of the serious guy and um i i think that it was really cool to see him do that comedy that he is known for in the early parts of his career yeah there was an interview i was listening to with tom hanks and he was talking about at some point in his career he just wanted to stop playing man children basically he wanted to play guys who knew they were adults that and was- so you can kind of see it very clearly like that turn of you know what i'm done playing these guys who don't know what they want to be i want to play guys who know what they are and unfortunately that means we lose a little bit like you said of that fun young comedic type of tom hanks you could go on and on about how tom hanks is a good actor but it was really cool to see sort of this origin story as you said of you know the capital a actor in tom hanks and a movie that he's extremely well known for that was definitely my blind spot and I had been thinking a lot about recently. Um, So I was really happy to see that you had suggested it. Another thing I thought about is is a very beautiful and idyllic New Jersey suburb and Mm. the dichotomy of, you know, the first night that he's in New York when he's in the ramshackle hotel and hears the gunshots and he cries for his parents is like I felt like I was watching a scared little kid, even though I was watching Tom Hanks. And mm-hmm. that's how any of us would react. That's how a lot of us react on like our first slumber party at just like a, a normal <laughs> person's house. Cause you're like away from your parents for the first time. And you're like, don't know what you're up to, don't know what to do. And I, I really thought that the, that scene really stood out. I think that that's that part. I was like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is good. What else stood out for you? So, you know, you can't talk about this movie, obviously, without talking about Tom Hanks, but also without talking about Penny Marshall. To me, she brings comedies with heart and dramas with levity, but all of it has like a very intense sincerity to it. And, you know, I know they don't make movies like this anymore, and it's partially because they don't have directors like Penny Marshall anymore. And maybe there is one out there and Hollywood's not funding her, but... I just was watching it like, where would they put this movie today if it were to ever get greenlit? And I just imagine they'd have to put it on Netflix and it would be targeted to families and not really be taken very seriously. And that's unfortunate because that is not not always the case. And this movie could have easily slipped through the cracks if it was in a different era. I love that she stands as just this, just an ineffable force in cinema and Mm -hmm. her relationship with Rob Reiner, obviously, they did a lot of work together and her her work all on her own um, is really incredible. And I would just love more directors like Penny Marshall. I would love Hollywood to finance more movies like this or more movies like this to be written. Something I'm not sure what the missing element is, but <laughs> I would like it to I mean, be fixed. It, I mean, it's just the classic like conundrum of movies in 2021 where 
the 15 to 75 million dollar movies don't get made anymore. This movie got made for 18 million and it made 151 million dollars in the box office. It was the first film directed by a woman to gross more than 100 million at the US box office. Like it was a groundbreaking movie and Penny Marshall did that. Like yeah. she and Tom Hanks did that. And and then, you know, a few years later she's nominated for best director for A League of Their Own. Like she is an incredibly important filmmaker. These movies don't come around anymore. This is probably either a Netflix series or it's like a goofy, the studio comedy, you know, famously yeah. has dwindled in the last five, 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. So that was just like another thing that I really took to heart as I was watching it that I would love a, a movie like this to exist again. Um, and I just, as much as, as much as this movie is about Tom Hanks, to me, this movie is equally about Penny Marshall and her extraordinary work and how she can create a film like this and, and find the right people and find the right crew to make something like this happen. It's just really admirable. Shout out to Penny fucking Marshall. Yeah, true. I, I think it's hard to watch this movie and not immediately think of Tom Hanks and then look into this movie and not immediately think of Penny Marshall. Yeah. Um, but since watching it, what have you thought about the most? This is my, uh, I'll refer to as my nitpicking section. Just a <laughs> lot of things I like have been thinking of. Like it's one of those things where after I watched the movie, I was like brushing my teeth like, wait, how did, <laughs> which is exactly what I was looking for. All right. I have so, defenses for most of these. Okay. Number one, how did he afford all that stuff? I have a breakdown. Okay. So he gets paid round it up to $200 every pay period. Let's say it's every two weeks. So he's there for six weeks as they're waiting for the forms to come back. That's roughly $600. He does get a raise. So let's say he makes double, which is $1,200. Then he gets a gigantic apartment in New York City, fills it with a bunch of expensive stuff and a new wardrobe. In 2021 money, that's $2,000. Eight hundred and five dollars. That is not enough money, <laughs> and you cannot get all that stuff in six weeks. And the math does not add up. <laughs> okay, so in defense, one, yeah, he's making one hundred eighty-seven dollars per paycheck while he's working at his entry-level job, but he immediately gets promoted to vice president, which means. At bare minimum, he probably gets like a three times pay job. Like if he's making, like if he was making $40,000, he's at least making like 150000 at this point. So there's that. Okay. And then two. Willing to accept that. He's renting all the stuff in his apartment. Because when the moving guys are bringing it all, he goes, the rentals are here. I'll, I'll accept that as well. Also, when you're. Twelve, a hundred dollars is like a million dollars. So when you have upwards of thousands of dollars coming in, you don't even know how to spend it. Like he's he spent it on a soda machine, a trampoline. He spent it on one month's rent. That who knows if he has to pay it? Like what are they going to default it to? This twelve year old kid? Like yes, he knows he's on limited time, and so he's going to spend the money however he wants. And the money he got within two paychecks. Definitely either one gets approval or probably not approval, but like you can faint approval and definitely get some all those little toys in a bunk bed like that probably costs a hundred dollars at Walmart. So it is a lot of money to him. It is not a lot of money to the city of New York or people who rent 
pinball machines or soda machines to private. People. I know, but he's only there. He, let's say he moves in there like probably with five, four to five weeks. Again, he's making VP money at one of the bigger toy companies in New York City. He has an assistant. And you saw his office. Yeah. And also, nothing is more exaggerated in movies than New York City apartments. No, like Meg Ryan owns a bookstore and you've got mail and she owns an apartment three times the size of mine. No, obviously the answer is it's movie bullshit for sure. But like as I was watching it, I was like, where did all of the funds come from? Because it's like, okay, so at the end of the six weeks, you have approximately, I'm going to round up to $5,000 in 2021 money. At the no, end no, of I think that's weeks. low because if he's only making $5,000 after six weeks, that means he's barely making over $65,000 per year. He's at least making six figures. Okay. Which might means he's probably making at least, I don't know how math works, $80,000 in 1988 in New York City. Okay. Um, and he's renting one month and who knows if he ever pays the bill. <laughs> he's not around. Yeah. He he's back in New Jersey. Okay, we gotta move on. I got a lot of I got a lot of other questions. Okay, <laughs> this is Amanda's financial corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which for someone with numerical dyslexia, not a great corner to be in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's very calm about being in love with a child. <laughs> this is the number one issue with this movie. <laughs> Extremely calm. Uh, addendum to that, I feel like he would have been way more freaked out about having sex for the first time. They cut off very quickly. Yes, it is not. It is implied by the next scene of his uh, joyous entering of the building. But uh, I feel like he would have been a lot more scared. Dumb movie bullshit. We and unless you have something to say, we can move on to my question about this. I don't actually think they have. If they either actually don't have sex, like that's the first time he's seen a woman with her shirt off for sure. I just feel like she is anything after that. He's walking very happily into the office the next day. As far as... I just feel like she, as like an adult woman, believing she's having an adult relationship with another adult, is not not having sex with him that night. I mean, she already didn't have sex with him the first night. Yeah, why she probably had sex with him the second night. (laughs) I mean, she's probably just weirded out. Like, not weirded out. She's probably just caught off guard of like, Oh, he. She's probably thinking the best, where he's like, "Oh, he wants to take it slow or whatever." Um, Either way, very, v- extremely calm about finding yeah. out he's thirteen years old. Um, okay, another big one that I, I think is just. Wait, can we talk a little bit more about her, Susan being very calm about <laughs> yeah. being with a thirteen-year-old? I don't think she believes it until she sees him walk away and he's thirteen, and so I think she has a mental breakdown going back to New York City. Oh, there's so much therapy that needs to be done after this movie yes. for every single character. <laughs> I was thinking a lot about that as well. It's very much like a therapy thing to like heal your inner child. And I was like, okay, but what if for six weeks you were 30 years old? It's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Okay, my last nitpick. His parents do not try very hard to find him. <laughs> he didn't change his name. They like they put him on the back of a milk carton. She accepts one phone call from him and like no one goes looking for him. No one is like asking more questions. They're not questioning the neighbors. 
They're not like, and maybe there's like big parentheses parents version. And, <laughs> and it's like that it's like a, a, like a horror story, but like, they just really don't seem to be trying very hard. She like is on the walkie talkie with the best friend toward the end of the movie, just being like, have you seen him? <laughs> He's like, I imagine he'll be home soon. She's like, okay. <laughs> just like moves on. What the fuck? It's a tough moment for his parents. It's even tougher for the dad because he just disappears. Yeah, that doesn't never see the dad again. And okay, so the mom is at home with the younger kid as well. Yeah, she's got things going on. She's got some trauma to unpack. A a strange man just broke into her house. The cops were saying she was in hysterics. Her neighbors were saying she was in hysterics. Maybe the cops aren't trying very hard to find this boy at this point. I don't know. Um, He's a suburban white kid. I think they're trying pretty hard. These are the kind of kids they try to find. That's true. But maybe there's a, if if you want to be generous to like the lack of search, maybe it's like, oh, he ran away. He'll come back soon. Yeah. There definitely is a lot of that in the eighties. The, you know, big parents version directed by Blake Lively starring Miles Teller. This movie is 10 minutes long. Just like something I really thought about where I was like, man, they really just like accepted that he would come back in a couple of weeks after they got that phone call and, and and the song was sung. She was like, well. He must be fine. He's okay. Yeah. He must be alive. What an insane movie for the mom. Because from yes. her perspective, like she almost got like attacked by a strange man. This man is singing a lullaby and her son is just gone. gone. Yeah. And then like, what does he say when he gets back? This is something at like age 19, he registers in therapy that his parents never looked for him. And it, there's like a whole new spiral for them to unpack. <laughs> Wait, hold that because I have that question for later. Okay. Um, I also am going to um, put on my uh, Bill Simmons hat and say that they rank with uh, the Home Alone parents as like arrest them for child neglect. This oh my is God, not okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for both of them, for... Um... For Josh and for Billy. Like, Billy's like, oh, I don't have to go home until 10. He's just chilling out in New York City every single day. And they're like, oh, he he made the basketball team? Have you ever seen him shoot a basketball? Notably bad. How are his right. parents going to believe that he's on the basketball team? He, the parents don't want to go to a basketball game every once in a while? See his kid? Where the hell is he going? Where is he getting this money from? Where is he spending? I have a lot of questions. Does that look at his sock drawer once and sees, like, his big stack just gone? There's a lot... I don't know how parents were in the 80s, man, but... They weren't great. That is a notable thing. Uh, There were a lot of uh, um, latchkey kids in the 80s, but uh, this feels like an entirely new level. Um, Also, just you got to trail the best friend one day and you'll you'll find him. It just doesn't seem that hard. Okay, we can move on. It's tough for the parents. It's a tough look for parents. So other than the CNN money calculator, what was the first thing you looked up about this movie? I did I did Google like money inflation calculator. Um, <laughs> I wanted to know if it was well received. Awards wise, I know that it is like in everyone's hearts it is well received, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And, you know, similarly to how a movie like this never gets made, a movie like this would never be nominated for an Academy Award or a Golden Globe. And <laughs> this movie was nominated for two, including uh, Tom Hanks for Best Actor. And um, he won a Golden Globe for Best Actor. And for it to be about a movie where he plays a 13-year-old, that's just crazy. 
I mean, it does. I, I, I wouldn't be stunned if a movie like this wins an award at the Golden Globes at Best Comedy because the Golden Globes are famously like depraved and insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so if a good enough campaign is run, I'm sure you could just get a drunk famous person on stage and give them the award. But it is still a landmark moment for Hanks. Like he was a dude on like Love Boat and like Bachelor Party. And then all of a sudden he's getting Academy Awards recognition or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, this movie, I mean, A, doesn't get made today, but I believe that this movie would, there's no way he would be nominated for Best Actor. I mean, he's going against Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man. Like, that's, those are completely different um, experiences. Gene Hackman and Mississippi Burning. I mean, it it isn't necessarily, like, the best movie year we've ever had, but definitely something like Rain Man, if it were made today, would be it would be in the oscars talk and i just like don't think that like a movie where an adult man plays a child would ever be considered and it just shows a how good this movie is but also b how much movies in the academy in hollywood have changed a lot i also wanted to know um some more about penny marshall um because i knew she i knew that she had a very um big career a very illustrious career but I wanted to know, I realized I didn't know as much about her as I thought I did um, when I started researching her, but she had an extremely successful career as a TV actor before really doing any directing and producing, quite famously as Laverne in Laverne and Shirley, the Happy Days spinoff. Um, and Tom Hanks was in an episode of Happy Days. I'm curious if that's where they potentially met each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but on top of like directing these gigantic films that are are some of the most well-renowned and in, in, in the hearts of Americans everywhere. She had an entire acting career before any of it, um, which is extremely hard to do and is highly impressive anytime, but also for a, a woman in the 80s to be both a, a comedic actress and taken seriously as a director. Um, again, shout out to fu- fucking Penny Marshall. Penny fucking Marshall. All right, so some other things that I looked up afterward were um, if Tom Hanks was always meant to play this character because he, mm. the the child and him look very similar, which is great, great casting. Yeah, and um, I found out that this is couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, yeah, there are a ton of casting what ifs. So it originally started as a Steven Spielberg movie, as we noted earlier. Another thing that it has in common with Big Fish. And uh, in his movie, Harrison Ford was going to play the lead, and um, but Harrison Ford had his first child, and so both of them left the left the project. Then Kevin Costner, Steve Gutenberg, Warren Beatty, and Dennis Quaid were all offered, but turned it down. I think Dennis Quaid would have been a good a good choice. I like Dennis Quaid. I can see Costner too. Yeah, that was that was another good one. Albert Brooks was um, offered, but he didn't want to play a child, which I think is very funny. Very appropriate for Albert Brooks. (laughs) This next one is the funniest. (laughs) This is really good. John Travolta wanted it, but the studio didn't want him, which I think is really (laughs) funny also. John Trav, what a strange man. And then Sean Penn was considered. Uh, I couldn't find out much if he read or was auditioned or anything, but he was considered notably, um, but was deemed too young to play uh, the older version, but too old to play the child, of course. Gary Busey auditioned for Penny Marshall, and she said that he 
couldn't believe believably play someone um with like a childlike attitude play young um which i think is a pretty good call and um andy garcia read for josh but in proper 1980s experience uh one of the studio executives didn't want to spend 18 million dollars on a movie for a quote kid to grow up to be puerto rican despite the fact that andy garcia is cuban um (laughs) that's a tough look for that guy that is, and you know, eighteen million dollars in Hollywood money is not a lot for a kid to grow up brown. Like, what was the issue here? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> the issue is the guy was racist. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know the issue, but yes. So that one's tough. Deborah Winger tried to convince Penny Marshall to rewrite Josh into a woman, which would have been a very fun movie. But if you'd like to see that again, go watch Thirteen Going on Thirty. And lastly which I cannot believe this is real, but this is a completely (laughs) different movie in my mind. Maybe it's because I just re-listened to the Taxi Driver rewatchables. Oh, my God. (laughs) But Robert De Niro was originally cast but dropped out due to scheduling conflicts, and finally the movie went to Tom Hanks after Robert De Niro was already, like, in the movie and had to had to leave and was replaced by Tom Hanks. And that's how we got here. And that's what skyrocketed his career. I know I said like maybe Kevin Costner, but I genuinely can't imagine any of these guys in this movie. Um, Cause it is such is so Tom Hanks. Like imagine yeah. Robert De Niro doing the piano scene. No, you know? I don't like, want to. <laughs> right. And, and, and like, that's not Robert De Niro could probably do it, but it's going to be drastically different because he is De Niro and Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks. And it's so singular. Like, I know I say that a lot about a lot of these iconic performances we talk about, but this is wholly Tom Hanks in the 80s. This is like his final form of the young part of Hanks, right? Personally, I haven't watched a lot of these guys in their younger movies. Like I have, you know, I've seen Bull Durham or I've seen Taxi Driver. I've seen, you know, but all of them would just be too adult, like too sexy, too. Yes, way too serious. I know a lot of them could do comedy. I think Albert Brooks, in a way, could do it. It wouldn't be as physical. Um, it'd be very different. Like Tom Hanks had a Michael Jordan levels '90s, mm-hmm. but he was a fifth round pick in the draft of this movie. Like, it's crazy that all those things had to happen. Robert De Niro had to fall out of the movie for this magic moment to kind of happen. Like, do we have Hanks if not all this happens? Probably, but it'd be different. So, do you have any other? questions about his his budgeting abilities or like his maybe his his diet like what other questions do you have about this movie no not really i think it was all pretty straightforward yeah i I got all my questions out already (laughs) you did you did have a lot of questions which is fine which is what i'm here for i do have a lot of questions for you though okay okay we are best friends yes famously how would you prove to me that you were you if it was a similar thing where maybe you became a child version of yourself or an adult version of yourself that was unrecognizable. What would be the thing? So I saw this in the outline last night and I've been thinking a lot about it. And what I came up with is, and you can tell me if you have a better one or a different one, but a very famous to us photo of the two of us with the bowls on our heads. What was the conversation about that needed the the levity breakup of putting the bowls on our heads? That's a good one. That's a good one. I don't one. think a lot of people know. So I think that would be like only something you and I would know. That's a really good one. That's spot on. A movie related question. What do you think happens after Josh goes home? I, I think that there is 
a strain in his relationship with his parents forever because his parents would want to know where he was and they would not believe him. Do you think he tells them the truth? Yes, because he already told Susan the truth. And that's arguably way weirder. And at 13, you have to believe that your parents will believe everything you say. And they just don't accept it. And then he's like gaslit by his parents forever. <laughs> well, there's two options here, I think. Because he can either maintain the lie he he had that this person had kidnapped him and he was in New York City and it wasn't that bad. Or he tells them the truth and they think he's had a psychotic break. Oh, So the issue is that um, his parents didn't look for him. So they probably wouldn't have many follow-up questions. Um, so whatever, whatever he says, they may just believe at face value. This is the other question I have. How quickly do you bail if you're Elizabeth Perkins in the scene where she goes to the apartment? If you get in there and it's just Chuck E. Cheese, basically, of an apartment. I was literally thinking about this during the movie. As soon as I see bunk beds and a man lives by himself and you have bunk the no. <laughs> no. You're assumedly 30-something and you live alone. Uh You have no other furniture in your house except bunk beds and then toy stuff. It's basically the hype house. That is an absolute out of there for me. Good. I'm glad you have those standards. I never questioned them, but I you know, just love to reaffirm it. Tougher question. What's your Tom Hanks top three? Don't hold me to this. Everything can change every single day. Definitely catch me if you can. As mentioned earlier, a top movie for me in general. That one's real. Per- that one, I just, I love that movie so, so much. I also People of our one. age watch that movie on TNT all the time. I also have that one on DVD. Excellent movie. Gotta go next with uh, Sleepless in Seattle. It's my favorite of those um, films, as noted in previous mm-hmm. episodes. I, there's nothing wrong with the other ones. I just like that one more. Um, mm, top three. I don't know. This is the definitive Tom Hanks ranking. I'm kidding. <laughs> don't do that to me. Do you want me to go, and then you can? Yeah. No, no, no. What are your What are your top three, and then I'll I'll think of my third. Okay, you've got mail. Yeah. An incredibly important movie, um, to me and my partner, um, and just in general, the part where he does his impression of Michael Corleone, um, iconic movie. It's probably Tom Hanks at his most cruise control charming mm-hmm. where he's like, he's going to show up like LeBron and just get 27.7 rebounds and seven assists and barely break a sweat. So I love that movie. I'm a big, that thing you do guy. Interesting. I don't know if it's as much of a Tom Hanks movie, but it is the first movie he ever directed. And I do love that movie. Mm-hmm. And then toy story. Yeah, I mean, see, Toy Story is super up there for me for sure, but this is the issue, is that there is, like, a lot of movies I, like, third under those two. Like, those two are are very clear tops for me, but then, like, you know, I liked Mr. Saving Mr. Banks. I thought it was delightful. Saw it in the theater a couple times. Thought it was really nice. Thought he made a great Walt Disney. I like... Uh, Toy Story. It's not in my top five Disney's, but he is so quintessentially Woody, um, and that is super delightful. Uh, this movie is not very good, but I've seen it a lot of times, and I enjoy watching it. The Da Vinci Code, 
<laughs> he's very good in that movie. Um, yeah. Another movie that he is in a lot and is not very good, but I like a lot is the Polar Express. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy for you. Yeah, it's um, not good. Inarguably, it's not a good movie, but it fills me I, with I, uh, seasonal joy every single time I watch it. That's all that matters. I have a soft spot for The Money Pit. It was one of the first, like, I don't know. 80s movies i feel like me and my sister watched mm-hmm. like my sister sat me down and was like zach you should watch the money pit and i was like i don't know what that is i honestly don't even know if i knew it was tom hanks at the time yeah but i enjoy that movie um and then i really, I love, Joe Ca- the I really love castaway but am i gonna say that i actually my haven't seen castaway castaway is great forrest gump it fucking rocks like i forrest gump is good we've come all the way around in the discourse on forrest gump there's just like a lot of movies I like at the same level that kind of all tie for third, but I really like all of those movies. You could ask a hundred people in a room and you only need one. No, you could ask <laughs> the line, my queen. You could ask a hundred people what their top three Tom Hanks movies are, and you probably will get one hundred different answers. Yeah. If I'm really being real, like Catch Me If You Can is probably in that top three and and Toy Story. Tom Hanks is really proud of Cloud Atlas. That movie is not. It's a no from me, dog. I get it. It's like trying to pick your favorite three Denzel Washington movies. It's, just, like, it's so hard. Of the last 30 years, those two guys are probably the top two male movie stars. Um, yeah. And it's just... And Big was one of the first, and I'm glad you watched it. Would you watch it again? Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It definitely is a like, <laughs> I'm homesick or it's raining type of movie. You just cuddle up. You know what's going to happen. It's going to be good. Yeah. I do want to also add that the moment where he eats baby corn. It's so funny. My sister absolutely cannot stand baby corn. It freaks her out. It's like a family joke. And I thought of her. I thought of her. I like might send her a clip of that. She will find it revolting. <laughs> Honestly, I, I remember my parents and my siblings like doing that with baby corn. <laughs> And me asking, what are you guys doing? And they're like, wait, have we not showed you Big? And I think that's why I watched Big for the first time. Nice. Um, I mean, I'm glad you watched this movie. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Me too. What a shocker. Tom Hanks is a king. Petty Marshall is a titan. And Big, though depraved at some points, it's great. is fun as hell. Yeah, it's a good one. It's real good. All right. So I got to ask. I think I know the answer. But I got to ask, which movie did you like most out of the two? It's Big. Yeah. I'm guessing yours is Big Fish. It is for nostalgic reasons, but I really liked Big. It's really fun. Yeah, it's super up there. Um, I think I've said this maybe a couple times where like mine just wins based on like it having a personal relationship to me. But Mm -hmm. it in most other scenarios, you know, Big is is definitely up there. Yeah. Well, speaking of relationships, why don't we talk about our next movie swap? This is like, I love just being like, what if you watched the saddest movie ever made? <laughs> and you're like, okay. Um, Every day. <laughs> yeah, no, without fail. Um, so for uh, Valentine's Day, we're watching movies about love and lovers and being loved. Zach is going to be watching a movie that fucking destroys me, uh, Brokeback Mountain. And Amanda will be watching the iconic sports romance movie, Love and basketball. I'm fucking hyped. All right. So what do you know about Brokeback Mountain? 
I know Jake Gyllenhaal is in it. I know Heath Ledger is in it. I recently learned that Anne Hathaway is in it. Mm-hmm. And it's about some cowboys who find some romance that they have to grapple with, I think. And there was a really big Oscars campaign about it, if I remember right, when we were in middle school. Um, yeah. That's about it. What do you know about love and basketball? They play basketball? <laughs> Um, no, I really I know it is a movie that people absolutely love, and when uh, they talk about sports movies, people bring this movie up all the time. I'm incredibly excited for you to watch it. Um, great soundtrack that I know you'll appreciate. Excellent shots of the Rocky Mountains. I'm excited for you to to be able to see. Oh, love nature. It's a very beautiful movie. So uh, that'll be our our, our February swap. Um, you know, Happy Valentine's Day or Galentine's Day or February. Good excuse Happy uh, Arizona Statehood Day, as I celebrate on February 14th. There we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, other than our movies that we need to watch, what is on your watch list? Father, Son, House of Gucci. I'm fucking ecstatic for this movie to come out. Um, so that's on my watch list, especially by the time we um, this comes out. I also was recently listening to a couple of podcasts around Halloween about horror movies, and I wrote down movies that people I admire that they say they really like that I had never seen. Um, so I'm going to try to to run through a few of those. I watched Cam per the suggestion of uh, Joanna Robinson from The Ringer, and it was very odd, but very good. So I'm going to try to make my way through that that scary movie list as well as uh, watching some great movies that are coming out in theaters toward the end of the year. What about you? Like I mentioned before, I watched the Humphrey Bogart, Lauren McCall movie. Um, so I might fall down that rabbit hole. I really want to watch The Big Sleep. Um, obviously, it's a movie with those two. As far as theaters, I can't wait to watch King Richard and watch yes. Will Smith. I do want to watch and finish the Cowboy Bebop anime because mm-hmm. the live action is happening. I want to watch it in general. I don't really care about the Netflix adaptation of it. I just I know it's an important and like iconic anime series, so I want to get through that. And then because you brought up Joanna Robinson, I also wanted to say that Willow is a movie that I have not seen and she advocated for strongly recently. And then I just recently bought Mark Harris's book, R.I.P. Grantland, um, Pictures at a Revolution, um, talking about like that late 60s early 70s era of movies so i'm sure a lot will get name checked in there that i'll probably also like seek out so um lots of movies coming up lots of movies that are coming out lots of tv shows that are coming out are one of our mutual favorite directors the fucking goat pta is coming out with licorice pizza cannot wait for that i wish there was a way we could talk about him on this podcast but unfortunately i've seen them all i love movies i think we've said this <laughs> last six episodes movies well they're fucking great all right you can listen to us talk about movies every second tuesday of the month on your blind spotters feed on spotify thank you guys so much for listening um definitely follow the podcast on instagram at blind spotters pod you can find out your movie homework and uh, zach is firing them off on twitter at blind spotters i think it's a very fun place to interact as well Zach, where can people find you on the internet? Um, they can find me on Twitter at Zach Pocklive, or as always, you can follow me on Letterboxd if that's your thing. Amanda, where can people find you? 
If you'd like to send me your New Year's resolution or a potential uh, direct message of your affection, uh, you can find me on all socials at Amanda Liberto. If you'd like to buy me five states worth of flowers, let me know. Hit me up. I do have a window I could look out upon if you need some space. Just, you know, let me know. And if you want to jump around on a piano playing chopsticks and like hot cross buns or whatever, I got to work on my cardio, but hit me up as well. All right. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you on the second Tuesday of the month. Thanks for listening. Bye. I wish I was big. Mm-hmm.